usually we think of growing old chronologically as being associated with all these bad things. But actually, chronological time has no bearing on that. You can look at different species. There's some species that can be alive 200 years and they're as vital as they were when they were younger. Hey there, welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition. What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and Czech movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome to episode 154 of the Biohacker Babes. I'm Renee, tuning in from Las Vegas, along with my sister Lauren, on the other side. Hi, Renee. Yes, waving from afar. Hello. Hello. You're looking very young. Sorry, you're looking very youthful today. Oh, <laughs> you too. Is it the youthful filter on the computer? And no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, that, that's how the Zoom filter should be, just by age. As you go down, it just makes you look younger. Yeah. <laughs> the phenotypic yes. epigenetic filter. <laughs> yes. So right. surprise, surprise. We're talking about aging today. Yes. We have a, an incredible guest coming on for you today. We have Dr. Morgan Levine, who wrote this fabulous book called True Age, all about cutting edge research to help turn back the clock. So a lot about anti-aging, longevity, and health span today. And you know that I'm very obsessed with this topic. So I was just so excited to pick her brain. Really fascinating what research is coming out. I mean, every day there's something new. And, you know, at the end we were saying, we just really appreciate that she says there's still so much we don't know. And she's really at the cutting edge of all of the anti-aging research. So to hear that, it's it's pretty mind-blowing. And I'm very curious to see where we'll be in five, 10, 20 years. I think, you know, Lauren, we're at a good age, I think, for this. I'm just thinking by the time you and I are 50, this is going to be a totally different game in the longevity mm-hmm. space or when we're 60, et cetera. And um, I have to say, if you want to see Morgan at work, I would recommend watching the Goop uh, Labs episode with Gwyneth Paltrow, where her and Walter Longo are on there. And they do a really cool experiment looking at how different diets could potentially impact your biological age, not chronological age. So that was pretty fun to see her on there and then get to chat with her today. Yeah. She's so fun and so sweet and so smart. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And I know I say it a million times on the podcast, but I just was so impressed with how deep into the research to not have definitive answers about whether or not we should, you know, fast this way or exercise this way. I think that's so important to continue to just be open to the research and continue to listen to our bodies, knowing that there's, you know, a personalized code for everybody. And that was probably the most powerful insight I thought. Of, of the interviews. Sorry, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. But, but then I think it also comes back to that. We do know that fasting, a healthy diet, exercise, sleep, stress management, all of those do help. Like it is, it's all the foundational stuff we talk about on every episode, right? We do know that it helps, but yes, like Lauren said, what type of exercise is best for you? What type of fasting is best for you? And that's where you have to be your own biohacker or as Dr. Levine says, be your own scientist. Mm, that's her yeah. thing, you know? And so, yeah, you got to figure out which, 
which way is the best for you. Yeah. And that we have the agency to look at these biomarkers and, and kind of track the progression over time. You should do these tests. We'll share the one that Renee and I did, and we know there's been some updates since then, and, and none of them are perfect, but I think tracking the trends over time is really powerful. And then that does, it puts it into your own hands to be your own scientist. So we will right. share that mortality phenotypic age calculator. It was really a lot of fun. Renee yeah. is barely a teenager. <laughs> I don't know. I got a couple gray hairs coming in. I don't know that that's typical for a 13 year old. So oh, they didn't work that into the calculation. So no, <laughs> they didn't ask There's that question. There's no hair sample. <laughs> I got to up my spermity and I think so. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Levine. So Morgan Levine is an assistant professor of pathology at Yale University School of Medicine. Her research focuses on the science of biological aging, specifically using bioinformatics to quantify the aging process and test how lifestyle and pharmaceutical interventions alter the rate of aging. As a leading voice in the field of aging and longevity science, she has been featured in media outlets such as CNN, The Guardian, Time, Newsweek, The Huffington Post, the BBC, and many more. She also appeared in the docuseries by Netflix and Goop alongside Gwyneth Paltrow, which was released in early 2020. She is the author of True Age, Cutting Edge Research to Help Turn Back the Clock. She was such a pleasure to chat with. Yes, she was. All right, let's get started. Welcome, Dr. Levine, to the podcast. How are you doing? Good. I'm excited to be here. Yes, we are super excited for this conversation. As right before we hit record, I was telling you, it was like last night trying to fall asleep. I was like so excited for today. Um, We got to read your book, True Age, over the last week. And so much of it resonated with me. I have to say lately, I've been on this kick and kind of obsession with everything with like anti-aging and longevity, health span. And uh, Lauren and I as sisters, I feel like it's been kind of interesting. Like we have watched our grandparents age and we have seen some cases where health span and lifespan match up very closely and others where there's a really big discrepancy between the two. And so my personal goal with health and biohacking is to kind of get those to match, right? I want to focus on health span as much as possible. We joke that we want to be skiing when we're 90 years old rather than stuck in bed and watching TV kind of thing. So I'm really excited to dive into this topic today. So you have done so much amazing research on this topic. So I would love to hear from you first. What is your definition of health span versus lifespan? And how would you explain that to the audience? Yeah. So I think, you know, when you ask people how long they want to live, I think they only think about aging in terms of what we always characterize it as, you know, disease, loss of functional mobility, loss of cognitive mobility. And so really, I think this is where kind of this difference in health span and lifespan come from. So what we want is to actually maintain health span, which is how long you're alive with maintenance of, you know, lack of disease and full capacity. Of course, there's going to be some declines, but like you said, being able to ski at age 90 is probably a goal most people will have. And so the idea is to not just increase lifespan, but mainly increase health span. And then lifespan extension will probably be a side product of that, but not the main goal. Yeah. Can we ask just personally, I feel like so many people these days are like, I want to live to this age. I want to live to this age. Do you have a goal for how long you want to live? I don't really have a goal. I mean, I feel like we'll see. For me, it's however long I can stay healthy and functioning. And I think, of course, our perspectives change, you know, as you get further out. Um, Totally. You know, some people who have some functional decline, they're 
they're not going to be like, oh, no, my life's not worth living anymore. Forget it. I want to. So, yeah, who who knows what what's in store. But for me, it's yeah. just as long as possible, as long as I'm healthy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Same. Same for me. I guess follow up question for the people that are saying, oh, I'm going to live until I'm 130 or 150. How likely is that given like the research that we have that's picking up with, you know, technology, biohacking stuff, supplementation, drugs, anything that's out there? Is that possible? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a little bit of a pessimist on on that kind of thing. I don't think with what we have now, people are going to live to 150 or maybe even not past 120. But it's so hard to predict where huge breakthroughs could come from. So I'm not saying it's not going to happen. If there is a major breakthrough in, and the science is accelerating, the funding into is accelerating. So it is possible if science can find a way to make that happen. Hmm. Oh, you are an optimist then. <laughs> I, I think we agree in that. It's like, probably not, but maybe. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, with how awesome. fast the science is going. That's, yeah. There's potential. So let's next break down the different types of aging. So chronological age, biological age, Maybe we just start with those two, because I know there's also yep. the DNA methylation and more. So let's start with those yeah. two. How would we break those down? Yeah. So if I were to ask someone how old they are, they're going to automatically think their chronological age, which, you know, everyone knows how to measure that. It's how long you've been alive. It's what's on your driver's license. And usually we think of growing old chronologically as being associated with all these bad things. But actually, chronological time has no bearing on that. And we know you can look at different species. There's some species that can be alive 200 years and they're as vital as they were, you know, when they were younger. So it's not this chronological time. It's actually the biological processes, which then we refer that to this as your biological age. So it's kind of how much your body has kind of diverged from an optimal or mo- most resilient state. And it's kind of compared to the general population, how old do you look based on some parameters? And that's, the number that really matters in terms of your health, in terms of your functioning. And the important thing is that unlike chronological age, that's a modifiable feature. So we think it can be slowed. We think potentially it could even be reversed. Um, We're still working on ways to actually understand the best ways to do that. But I think that's a lot of promise for people. Yeah. I know you've done a ton of research into how to predict these ages. And I think, I mean, there's a million different, not a million, there are quite a few different tests out on the market. And uh, I know that you found some had huge discrepancies, but I think a huge motivation is finding something that feels accurate enough that will motivate people to engage in healthier behaviors rather than scare us from the aging process. So what are we seeing in, in terms of testing right now? Yeah, so there's been a huge push to try and estimate this biological aging process and and actually give people an insight because it's so hard, right? You can't, like chronological age, you don't know your biological age innately. So because so many things change with aging, you could actually develop, like you almost said, like thousands of different ways to calculate these. And people have developed lots of different ways. But the important things I always come back to are kind of two things. One is the reliability of the test. So if I were to test you twice on the same day, would you get essentially the same age? Because you're not going to expect that you're going to change rapidly within a day. Um, And some of these tests are better at doing that just because they have less noise in the technology. And then the other important thing is what we call construct validity. So what that means is not only should this thing predict your age, chronological age pretty well, 
but that difference between your chronological age and your predicted age should have biological meaning and that it is predictive of things like disease. Because if it's not, who cares if you're changing this biological age estimate, if it actually has no bearing on your risk of disease, on your risk of decline, on your risk of mortality? Yeah, I've had some fun with the different testing options because I am so curious about what my biological age is. Um, And I have some notes here. So this is interesting. So inside tracker, which is just looking at, at blood work. And I don't know what biomarkers they're looking at. They said I was 25. Mm-hmm. I'm 35 now. Viome, which is looking at the gut microbiome said I was 18. And then with your book, I did the, the little quiz with looking at fasting glucose, CRP, all these things yep. said I was 13. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, all good news. Cause they're all less than 35, but it, but I don't know what the other ones are sharing. Like yours, I could see, I knew exactly what biomarkers it was looking at, but the other ones, they don't tell you. So I don't know. It's a, it's an inter- interesting game at the moment, I would say. Yeah, I will say, so the one I developed, I actually think there's something going on now where they changed how they measure some of the assays because everyone is very underpredicted. So the test okay. I developed was based on data from the 80s. And I think they've updated the way they assay and that shifts everyone. Um, so there needs to be an okay. update on that. So actually what I tell people is it doesn't really matter what number you get, but more what matters is how much you increase over time. Because I think kind of that, this is kind of like your intercept, right? It doesn't matter where you rank, but it's as you're aging chronologically, how much are you aging biologically? And to me, that's the more important thing. So if you were to test again in a year, you would have gained one year of chronological age, but ideally you would gain less than a year of biological age. And then you would think that over, you know, 10 years, that's going to really compound and you'll have an even bigger kind of divergence. But I think it's important to keep in mind that your biological age estimate you get for these is always in relation to some population average. And so it's a a little arbitrary what that population is. So it's more you should compare to yourself over time that's important. Oh, interesting. The trends. Is it just too big of a population or is it like sick and healthy people? Like what's the discrepancy there? Yeah. So it's hard to know from some of these tests what their reference population is because they don't publish their their measures or, or how they derive them. Um, I can tell you the one I developed was based on what we call a nationally representative population. So it's the U.S. population where they randomly sample people. So it's supposed to represent the actual population. But again, it was a population in the 80s. And we know things have kind of changed. So that's just saying relative to someone in the 80s, what you're. And, and I know, yeah, some of the measures yeah. have changed. Then we didn't have the high sensitivity CRP, which you probably had in your tests, which that could be skewing things a little bit. Got mm. it. Okay, okay, so yeah. we're teenagers. In yeah, the I mean, just basically, basically. <laughs> yeah. Regardless, a, they were all good news. I think is the the key. There. I yeah. think so. I mean, Renee's yeah. practically an adolescent, and I'm still under the, the legal drinking age. So you know, there you go. We're aging yeah. backwards. So we'd still be think, getting carded. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think you're saying to watch the trend over time, which is evident for most biomarkers, we want to watch patterns and trends. And I notice in this report, it tells you the difference between phenotypic and chronological and also your DNA methylation versus your chronological. And those seem like pretty close, but is that the number that we would want to track over time to see like the mean difference? Yeah, I'm actually not sure how, so I didn't develop that thing where they 
transfer it to a methylation age. I'm not sure how that was derived. I, w- I wouldn't go on that because I that has never been validated. Um, okay, so I, many the calculations. Only actually, <laughs> yeah, the only way to actually measure your methylation age is to measure your actual methylation. You can't get it from the clinical measures. So let's mm. talk about that. What is DNA methylation yeah. and how is that different than your phenotypic age? Yeah, so this is, again, you can measure aging using tons of different things because so many things change. But the most exciting thing I think in the past decade has been this idea of epigenetic age, or specifically we're talking about DNA methylation, which is one form of epigenetics. And probably a lot of people don't know what epigenetics is. Maybe they've heard this term, but the idea is um, it's not a change in your DNA sequence. So you have your A, C, G, and T. It's not changing that. But what it is, is it's a chemical tag that can get added to certain parts of your genome, basically when you have a C next to a G. And all that does is it changes kind of the folding of your DNA. And that might sound convoluted, but why that's important is it changes how your DNA is used. So I think of it almost like the recipe book. So you have all your genes, which are all the ingredients you need to make anything. And each cell has its own recipe for what it's supposed to be using. And it's how you get a brain cell and a skin cell that have exactly the same DNA, but very clearly they're different cell types. And it's because they use different parts of the genome. And the epigenome is what controls which parts they can use. So methylation is just this chemical tag. And what we do is we just look at the pattern of that across hundreds of thousands to sometimes millions of sites in your genome. And then we can use computer science and machine learning to say, oh, your pattern looks like someone who is this age or someone who has this much remaining life expectancy. Hmm. And that's a saliva test? Yeah. So most of the tests were actually based on blood tests. Um, oh, okay. But you, you can do saliva because the majority of the cells in your saliva are actually blood, white blood cells. So you can almost infer what your blood measure would be from your saliva sample, which most people would prefer to do a saliva test than a, a blood test. Oh yeah. We're always pricking our fingers at home. It's like, oh, just one more finger. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I had to do one the other day and the first finger wasn't enough. Second finger wasn't enough. I'm like, oh my gosh, am I dehydrated? That that third finger finally just filled all five bubbles. (laughs) Yeah. I have really bad circulation. So I always have a hard time with the finger. Yeah. So we'll take saliva any, anytime we can. Yep. So another possible test, I would love to hear your opinion on telomere length. Cause I feel like 10 years ago, that was what we were hearing in the space. Like that's the best way to measure, but share why that is maybe not the ultimate test. Yeah, it was a, a hot topic. And I think still, so when you start talking about, oh, measuring biological age, I think a lot of people still think that's what we're talking about because that was kind of the first really publicized way, I think, to do this. But the data really is not that strong in terms of telomere length. And so even if you look at how much it tracks with just chronological age, it's maybe a kind of 0.3 correlation with chronological age, whereas epigenetic age can be like 0.8 or 0.9. So it tracks much more strongly with aging. But the more important thing, again, is does that discordance between your predicted and your actual chronological age is that predictive of things we care about? And telomere length actually is not very predictive. Some studies find associations with predicting remaining life expectancy. Some don't. Same thing for predicting disease. So at least the the methylation epigenetic age seems to be a much better predictor of these things compared to telomere length. 
Yeah. Good to know. It's funny. I, I remember when I did test my telomeres, it was, I think maybe 11 years ago. And I told a friend and they were like, why would you want to test for that? You could get hit by a bus tomorrow and none of it would matter. Like, okay. <laughs> Which actually Lauren and I were talking about this before you jumped on is how do we get some people on board to want to know this information so that they can be motivated versus being scared to test for yeah. these things? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it all comes down. Yes. You could get hit by a bus. These things aren't predicting when you're going to die. They're just predicting your risk. So your likelihood. And I think, you know, if you told someone I could change your likelihood that you're going to get cancer, I would imagine most people would want to do that. I, I don't think they would think, oh, well, who cares? Cause I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. So why would I want to change my likelihood of getting cancer in 10 years? So most people I think would want to. And I think for me, the the best way to actually go about trying to intervene is to first know where you kind of stand and, and get that baseline measure. Because again, you can always compare to yourself. And the question is, if you have that baseline, you can have a little bit more insight of how well you're doing if you need to kind of change course. And for some people, I think it's a wake-up call. So I feel like a lot of people think they're pretty healthy, even though, or they, they're like, yeah, I kind of exercise. I, and, you know, maybe I'll go walk my dog every now and then. But I think it, it really is kind of can be a wake up call for some people who maybe should be doing a little bit more. But again, it's everyone's choice if they want to really invest in their health. And yeah, no one has to do it. So yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a great point. I think having the biomarkers or having the testing to show like is my perceived, I guess, rate of aging the same as, you know, how I feel. And I, I have met a lot of people where they say I'm healthy because you know, they engage in moderate exercise and they eat very, really healthy, but we look at biomarkers or look at something like glucose levels, glucose trends mm -hmm. over time. And it's like, oh, there is stress in the body, but yeah. we know that we have agency to change that. I know in the book, we talk about the contributors to aging and number one, you said is health behaviors. And that's something that we could control even over like recent stressors or adversities, which we don't have control over. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the key is I think too, a lot of people have this misconception that it's genetic and that, you know, I'm going to age quickly because, you know, my parents did, or, or maybe they think, oh, I, I can rely on the fact that my grandparents lived to 90 something or a hundred, but actually the science says that very, very little of, of kind of aging and life expectancy is due to genetics. So most of it is probably due to our behaviors, our environment, a little bit of kind of random chance, but yeah, we have the, probably the most control. And yeah. how much does stress play a factor in that? Because I'm thinking of our grandmother who lived into her mid nineties and, you know, she was, I wouldn't categorize her as healthy. She smoked most of her life. She didn't mm -hmm. eat well. And, but, but she didn't have a ton of stress other than having a lot of kids, but, yeah. but she lived like pretty to a pretty good age. So where does stress fit into that category versus people that are trying to do all the right things, but maybe do incur a little bit more stress because they're trying to control. Yeah, I think the data suggests that stress has a pretty big impact, especially not necessarily these kind of short, kind of acute stressors. So like something happened at work, that, that's probably not a big deal, but it's these chronic maintained stressors. And I think one of the best pieces of evidence for that is just looking at social disparities and how that maps on to health hmm. and life expectancies. So you know, some people say, oh, well, it's access to health care. But actually, people have looked at uh, even in countries where there's universal health care, social disparities 
that play a huge role in kind of health. And they think it's because of kind of the chronic stress that tends to be experienced by people with low socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. Yeah, stress really is yeah. a killer. Oh, yeah. Which makes me like nervous when I do see people like Lauren said that are like very strict about their diet and their exercise and all this stuff. And I'm like, I feel like you're very stressed about it. So that's yeah, exactly. a good thing to yeah. note. Yeah. yeah. Don't go overboard. Yeah. And then I'm curious about like the male and female discrepancy. And again, Lauren and I have seen our, our both of our grandfathers passed in their seventies mm-hmm. and then both of our grandmothers, well, one just passed away at 95 and our other grandmother is nine, 91, 90, 90. So that's a, 91. that's a, 91. She just had a birthday. That's a big discrepancy. So can you talk a little bit more about that? What are we seeing between genders for life expectancy? Yeah. So there's definitely a very significant difference in life expectancy. And especially as you get up even to the older ages. So the proportion of females that are... So if you look at a centenarian, it's a huge discrepancy in terms of male-female proportions. So majority are, are females and then once you get up to super centenarian, which are people like 110, it's like almost predominantly female. But on average, you know, women only live, it's only a few years on average for kind of median life expectancy difference. Um, but the other interesting difference is the types of diseases that men versus women are more kind of at risk for. So there's this thing called the male-female longevity paradox, which is this idea that women might live longer, but are more at risk of kind of these debilitating conditions. So things like Alzheimer's disease or arthritis or osteoporosis or sarcopenia, which is a muscle wasting. So they they might have more kind of functional and cognitive loss with aging, but they're it's not enough to kill them. So they can kind of reach older ages uh, than mm. male counterparts. And then, so men, do they tend to get diseases that just kill you faster or like what, what's happening yeah, there? That That's one like hypothesis. Heart is, yeah. Heart disease, diabetes, some cancers. The other interesting thing is women tend to be much lower risk up until menopause. And then it seems to almost accelerate and they have their risks of things like heart disease or other conditions actually start to look more like the male risks. So that, yeah, there's some idea that female hormones actually might be protective. Um, But the other interesting thing is you see these sex differences across different species. So it's not something about our environment or or something about being human that that contributes to these, but it's some probably evolutionarily conserved thing that gives females this longevity advantage. What? Mm -hmm. I want to know more. (laughs) Do we know if it's more like on the inflammatory side, immune side? Cardiometabolic, any other indications there? Hey, biohackers, and a special hello to our female biohacker listeners. I have some very exciting news. I am co hosting my very first retreat this fall. It is a women's retreat this October 26th through the 30th in the Dominican Republic with my friend and fellow biohacker Dasha Maximov. Come Home to Your Body is a curious and playful exploration of how stress and tension is stored in our bodies and how we hold microtraumas, which affect our posture, our movement capabilities and strength, and even how we walk into a room. Women in particular tend to hold these stressors in the physical body even more so than men, which is why we felt called to create a safe and empowering space to address these stuck energies and to find creative and scientific ways to move them through the body. 
Not only will you come away from this retreat feeling more confident, energized, and safe in your own body, but you'll have the tools and resources to continue this journey as you venture back into your everyday life. Integration is really tough. So we have created supportive strategies so that this healing vacation doesn't end when you leave. We'll be spending time in workshops, playing, being creative, learning from one another, supporting one another, and of course, enjoying the beauty of the Dominican Republic with some additional adventures like horseback riding, sunrise beach walks, waterfall hikes, and as much downtime and downregulation as you need. If you want to learn more, visit the link in the show notes. Just scroll on down. With that link, you can book a discovery call with both myself and Dasha. We're really excited to chat with you and to host you in this very beautiful place. In the meantime, if you want to learn a little bit more, you can go to wealth.co or click the link right below the discovery link and you can learn more about what we are offering, the exact dates, any FAQ you may have, and we will look forward to chatting with you. All right, let's get back to the show. I mean, people are really interested in this topic and they're looking at trying to figure out why it is. I don't think we have a clear idea. So some people think, oh, it's because they have an extra X chromosome. So maybe that gives them some advantage. Some people just say it's, you know, uh, female sex hormones seem to protect them. Um, I think on average, women tend to have slightly more inflammation. So I don't think it's necessarily Mm. that, but it's not exactly clear. One, another interesting thing looking at different species is it seems to be species that have more kind of discrepancy between kind of maternal versus paternal uh, investment in child rearing have bigger differences. So species where there's less paternal involvement, actually the male-female gap is bigger. So women, the females live even longer than the males in that, in those groups. Interesting. Wow. So what's yeah. the takeaway? What's the advice for women? You have like, you have us on the edge of our seats. Have more babies. And- yeah. <laughs> probably not. So it probably doesn't work on the individual level, but yeah, it's, I don't know. Yeah. There's not good advice, but I think for women, the important thing is to pay attention to the things that females tend to be more at risk for, right? So muscle wasting, like if there's ways to do strength bearing or think, or risk of osteoporosis, then making sure you have maintaining good bone health it's kind of hard for things like Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. There's not really good treatments or things for that yet. Although ex- things like exercise seem to be good at preventing. Hmm. Yeah. And managing glucose, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. I was like looking at different species, like the naked mole rat and the hummingbird, like what we can learn from them. I'm curious, do you have a favorite like animal study that you think is really compelling in this space? I mean, they're all really interesting. Actually, there's just a, a paper that came out, I think, on uh, tortoises that was interesting too, looking at whether they what, age according to what we call this demographic aging. So whether their mortality risk increases uh, with aging. I don't have a favorite, although um, one of my colleagues, Steve Horvath, who also works on epigenetic clocks, has now been working on making epigenetic clocks that work across all mammalian species. And then you can actually look at that to compare rates of epigenetic aging. And that includes naked mole rats. We we also had a paper with another colleague, Vadim Gladyshev at Harvard, that looked at an uh, epigenetic clock for naked mole rats. And according to the clock, they age, but people say demographically that they don't. So yes, hmm. it's unclear what that means. Hmm. Can you explain what the <laughs> clock is too? I don't know that our yeah. audience is familiar with that. Yeah. So it's, it's just an epigenetic clock. So kind of what I described before, where they look at these chemical tags across the genome 
he actually didn't come up with the first clock. Uh, so the Horvath, the famous Horvath clock actually wasn't the first, but a lot of people assume it was the first because it was the most kind of publicized popular. and yeah, popular clock. So that came out, I think, in 2013. And basically what it was is a way to estimate age across different tissue types in humans. And then these epigenetic clocks have continued to evolve and there's been other kind of types of iterations. Um, the difference between that one and more of the newer ones is, again, that one was trained to predict chronological age. So the goal was to see how closely you can predict the age of an individual, whereas newer ones are more trained to predict things like remaining life expectancy or future or kind of time to next disease and things like that. Very cool. I'm curious about senescent cells. We haven't talked too much on the podcast about them, but I think our audience knows these are cells that age and they could turn into zombie cells because we're not good at, I'm not sure what the word is, excreting them or get, yeah. killing them off. <laughs> yep. um, you wrote something really interesting in the book where you said it's unclear if the cells are, I guess, getting an unintentional loss of like strategy or if, if they're like, joining their friends that are that are aging they're like joining their fallen comrades what's the deal there with like cellular behavior yeah so uh senescent cells are it's basically a state the cells can enter in after they've incurred some sort of damage so i like to think of it when when a cell has undergone damage or kind of reached the end of its lifespan because it's divided a certain number of times that there's kind of a, only a few options so one is Maybe the cell can repair and return to normal. Uh, the other option is it can undergo what's called apoptosis, which is cell death. So it, it'll die and get removed. Sometimes if the cell doesn't do anything, it can actually turn into a cancer. And so this is the, the thing that we want to avoid, right? We don't want, and then, and then it'll proliferate. And then senescence is kind of the last one, which is what we think is an anti-cancer. So it's protecting the cell from not turning into a cancer. So it it can't die. So this is this idea of how they're called zombie cells because it turns off its ability to undergo apoptosis. So it won't die, but it also turns off its kind of ability to proliferate. So it can't, it can't produce more cells. It's just kind of sitting there by itself. It won't die. But the issue with these cells is they excrete lots of nasty pro-inflammatory cytokines. And these might then go on to induce senescence in their neighboring cells or cause damage in the tissues that they're resident in. So people are really interested in how do you remove these cells because they tend to accumulate with aging um, and cause a very pro-inflammatory kind of state where they're starting to accumulate. And does autophagy impact these cells? Yeah. So, so it, they seem to have, yeah, it impacts them. It probably impacts their the likelihood a cell will undergo senescence and also it'll also change to some degree in senescent cells versus what you would consider a normal cell. Okay. Okay. So, and maybe we can get into some of the lifestyle things that we can do. So speaking of autophagy, what are your thoughts on fasting and caloric restriction? You have a lot of great information in the book about that, but what are your thoughts? Yeah. So caloric restriction, I would say is the most, or the best studied kind of aging intervention. It's been studied for centuries. And at least in, you know, flies, worms, yeast, and uh, some degree of rodents, it does seem to impact aging and increase life expectancy. There are now interesting studies in non-human primates, so monkeys, 
And recently, there's a calorie trial, which is a clinical trial in humans of caloric restriction. And so far, the data does seem promising. I think what some people wonder is whether the benefits of caloric restriction are just due to a lack of overconsumption. So it's almost like, well, if you're not overconsuming, you're doing well. And it's not that deficit necessarily. So I think that's what we the science still needs to tease out. I, I'm a little more optimistic that the slight deficit is beneficial. But then I think the hard thing is that most people aren't going to, you know, live a life of caloric restriction. You have to maintain it for like your entire life. So it's not like I can do five years of caloric restriction and then go off it and then assume that I'm going to get a major benefit. Um, so the other thing people have become interested in is fasting, like you said, which is kind of an alternative and maybe an easier thing for more people to implement. And again, the data seems pretty good that fasting does have a beneficial impact on aging. So people look at a bunch of different kind of markers and and it's still not clear what fasting regimen might be the best one or the most optimal. And perhaps it's different for different people, but at least for now, it does seem to have a lot of promise and there's a lot of kind of investigation going in to that. Are you seeing anything on the on the genetic side that would help us to predict who would do well with that or with different types of fasting? Yeah, I don't think there are, there's good data on that yet, but I do think that's going to be an important thing to keep in mind. Even for the calorie restriction, some people are going to definitely benefit more than others, or maybe their window of fasting might be, they might have a more or less optimal window of fasting, which I think as more people start doing this and actually there's more data that's accumulated on them, we can perhaps start teasing that out. But right now there's just not big enough samples to really be able to accurately say something about that. Yeah, I know compliancy is a big part of um, these trials going well. So do you think like citizen science is a way to kind of push this science forward a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it definitely might be. And I think the one thing I like about the biological age estimates is it gives people, people don't necessarily have to wait for these huge studies. You know, you can almost do, like you said, you know, biohacking, or you can do your own kind of end of one experiment to some degree, as long as you don't put too much weight in every biological age measure that you get. But you can kind of find what works for you and have a a more accurate readout than just guessing and having no readout at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know in your book, you said, to like become your own scientist. I I love that because like to me, that is biohacking or being your own scientist or running Mm -hmm. your own N of one experiments. Do you feel like you're a biohacker? Would you classify yourself as one? Uh, To some degree. I mean, I'm definitely not a risky biohacker. So I I, I know there's a lot of biohackers that I'll try things that are, you know, a little more, I I only try things that I'm like pretty confident are going to be only beneficial, maybe have no effect, but yeah, I'm not Gotcha. I'm not like Ben Greenfield or maybe Dave Asprey doing some crazy stuff. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm, I'm like exercise. I know is good eating, you know, plant-based and, and fasting is probably pretty good. So, but yeah, I don't take a lot of supplements or do that kind of stuff necessarily. I have no problem with people who do, but (laughs) I feel like I have enough time. It would be interesting (laughs) to create like the risk index and, and place like the biohackers that we know on this spectrum of like, oh yeah who takes the biggest risk versus not and I'm sure as a scientist you're constantly you're you're in the research so I'm sure that would put you at the more conservative end and wanting to just yeah. like to blindly try something 
Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like maybe then too, I'm a little more, every study that comes out, I'm a little more cautious of whether I believe it or not. It takes like a few of them for me to be like, okay, I think this is legitimate now. And then to kind of jump on the bandwagon. I'm sure each yeah. new study like disproves the last. It's like, yeah. There's a lot of <laughs> the trends over time, of course, are going to be yep. really important. Yeah. So other um, than fasting, what else could we do? I think exercise is probably for me, the the best thing that most people can do. Um, again, it's not exactly clear what the best exercise is. And again, that keeps changing over time, right? Before, you know, people are saying hit. Now I, I keep hearing people talk about zone two and there's all these, it's constantly changing as well. And again, I think this is another thing where it depends who you are. So even like male, female differences, there's probably, you know, what's going to be most preventative for females versus males. And actually, I think often we do the opposite. So on average, this is generalizing, but in the past, women tended to do much more cardio, not much kind of weight training or weight bearing and, and men did the opposite. But actually, if you look at disease risk, they should probably switch. Some men probably need a little more <laughs> yeah. cardio and women need more weight bearing, but mm. to each their own. Yeah, I would agree yeah. with that for sure. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. I know. I mean, I I love strength training. I think it feels so good, but Mm-hmm. I didn't get into it until I discovered things I can do at home or going to Orange Theory Fitness. Like when I was going yep. to just like a lifetime fitness, I was terrified of the weight room. Yep. Because there were like no women there. All the men are yeah, like, exactly. like 200 pounds overhead. I'm like, I don't feel like I belong here. So I think for women, for us, we just need to find the right time and space to do the weight training. I think that's so helpful. Yeah. It can yeah. be very intimidating. Yeah. Yeah, oh, totally. I mean, everyone knows how to run. <laughs> like yeah, exactly. if you scare someone enough, they're just going to start running. But if you scare them <laughs> in front of yeah. a rock, they're not going to naturally like pick up the rock and put it over their heads. Just yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Somehow yeah. it didn't turn out to be as natural to do that. But, but yeah, yeah. I would agree. Yeah. The strength training is probably much more important for the women. Yeah. And so personal, I agree. Like it seems like the popularity of what's out there is changing all the time. So how would you say, like, what's a good predictor for you to determine if it's, if it's working for you personally, are you measuring HRV? Is there any other biomarkers or are you just listening to your body? Yeah. I mean, I think for me and, and probably for a lot of people, it's what, what will you stick to? So I always think it's important, right? Find something that is fun and you're actually motivated to go do it. So to some degree, yes, there might be a workout that you might get slightly better benefit from, but if it's harder for you to go and do it and you're less likely to kind of maintain that, then it might not be as useful. But yeah, I think HRV is a good thing. VO2 max is a great predictor of things. It's it's not as clear cut to measure on your own, but there are kind of ways that you can kind of estimate it. Yeah. And then I think just tracking your lab results over time and that kind of thing as well. Yeah. So we had Dr. Julie Fauché on from Wild Health and she was talking, mm-hmm. this is so fascinating to me. She was talking about like your, whatever you're predisposed to be better at. So if you have more fast switch muscle fibers, if you lean into that, you're actually going to get a bigger bang for your buck, which made me feel so good because I don't like cardio and <laughs> going up in my genetics. So it seems like kind of leaning into what you're already predisposed to be good at is also yep. helpful. Are you finding that with genetics? Yeah. So I haven't looked into that, but I can just say anecdotally, I mean, for me, I, I'm more motivated to do things that I feel like I can also get 
good at. And I feel like I'm successful yeah. at, and I would imagine most people are, you don't want to do things that you feel out of your comfort zone. And you're like, Oh, it's just not clicking well, or I'm the worst in my class for this. So I can see yeah. too how, and I think, yeah, it's, it's probably more fun and it's less of, not less of a challenge, but yeah, it's, it's more natural probably to just kind of work at whatever thing you're more predisposed to. But yeah, I haven't seen yeah. that in terms of the science, but I would totally believe it. Actually, now you're making me think it's not even that scientific. It's just like the enjoyment factor, <laughs> <Mental>. maybe. <laughs> it could be both. Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. 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 We'll take it either way. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, other lifestyle stuff. How about sleep? Hey, biohackers. I know that you're here because you're looking for that edge, the thing that's going to take you to the next level. One of our greatest self-optimization tools is often very underutilized. That's our breath. We're always breathing, but the way we breathe is either improving our health or making us sick. Our breath impacts essential aspects of our health, like the quality of our sleep. And personally, I will do anything to optimize my sleep quality. You're all biohackers here, so you know that restorative sleep is essential for well-being and longevity, and it directly impacts our autonomic nervous system. So how do we regulate our autonomic nervous system? Say that 10 times fast. We regulate it through the vagus nerve. And how do we activate our vagus nerve? Did you guess it? The best way really is through breath work. But how do we learn and implement a breath work practice when our lives are so, so busy already? You know I'm going to tell you. It's through a breathwork app called Othership. I follow Othership's guided breathwork sessions for sleep every night. They are so easy to follow. They're science-backed. They're fun. They're sexy, powerful, and extremely effective. Othership's down sessions are designed to transition my mind out of the active beta brainwaves and into the delta frequencies, preparing my mind and body for restorative sleep. So those nights when my mind is feeling a little extra active, I can just drop in and relax so much more quickly with Othership. And here's a secret that I've learned from the Othership app. The longer, more exaggerated the exhale, the better. When we take slow, deep, diaphragmatic breaths, we tap into the nerve endings at the base of our lungs. This tells our body that it's safe to relax and reduces our heart rate. And I know if you've been listening to the Biohacker Babes podcast, you know that safety is so, so essential to optimal health and longevity. When we can activate our parasympathetic nervous system, our vagal tone, the state of our vagus nerve increases, leading to improvements in our stress response. The science really is evident. Practicing down-regulated breathwork for sleep reduces our heart rate, quiets our thoughts, improves cognitive function, and increases HRV. HRV measures our body's ability to adapt to stress, and the more I consistently practice breathwork with Othership, the more I see my HRV increase. You can track yours with your Aura Ring or Whoop Band on days when you use Othership at night, or something like Hanu Health, which Renee and I have been experimenting with more and more. To me, the formula is so, so clear. High quality sleep is really just non-negotiable. And my breathwork practice, a huge part of the equation. This is how we access our competitive edge. Are you feeling ready? I want you to experience this difference too. Our friends at Othership have offered us a two free week trial. If you scroll down in the show notes, you can click the link to access your free two week trial of the Othership Breathwork app. Try it for two weeks. Let us know how you're feeling. Oh my goodness. I am so excited to hear how you breathe. All right. Let's get back to the show. I love the sleep. Yeah. So yeah. what are we seeing <laughs> in the sleep? <laughs> I call myself the sleep queen. So what are we seeing oh, in like, the I'm sleep, sleep now, space? Sleep is- Sleep is really important. I think sleep is often 
overlooked, right? We always think, oh, diet and exercise are the lifestyle interventions, but sleep is really critical, especially for certain diseases like Alzheimer's disease, which like uh, having really poor sleep quality and quantity seems to be a high predictor. We've also looked at things like sleep and cardiovascular disease risk. It's a little bit tricky because of the way the studies are run to say that poor sleep is causing these diseases because it could be that people who are unhealthy already have a harder time with sleep or that they're waking up more because of health conditions. But it does seem to have getting good sleep. You know, sleep is something we've evolved to need. It's a reset that's really important. And there's a reason we sleep, even though it's dangerous. And I mean, not in our current environment, but in past environments would be dangerous in terms of predators. It's clearly an important thing or we wouldn't do it. So I think making sure people are getting, and this, again, this is another place where it's like, what's the right number of hours? I think it probably depends on each individual. It's hard to estimate what's right for people, but I think people can tell if they're waking up naturally or or if they're still really tired when their alarm clock goes off and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember there was an article a couple of years ago and it was like people that sleep 10 hours a night are higher risk for, you know, all mortality and all these things. Mm -hmm. And in my immediate thought was, well, maybe the people that need the 10 hours have other stuff going on, but the article title made it sound like the 10 hours is what's killing them. You know, it's like, you're going to flip it how you look at it. So, um, titles are so deceiving. Yeah. Yes. Always. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Constantly. and you mentioned the Alzheimer's piece. So you talk about this in your book too, the APOE gene. Mm-hmm. So I'm a three, four. Lauren, yep. are you three, three or three, four? Three, four. You're three, four, two. Oh, you're also. So, so yeah, I'm like anything to do to prevent my risk for Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And I know sleep is a huge thing. And I've heard that sleeping on your side can be more beneficial as far as like the glymphatic system. Oh yeah. I think, yeah, I've heard that. I haven't looked into the studies as much, but yeah, I have heard that as well. And yeah, I think people, so I have, I'm, I'm a three, three, but I have three people or three, four in my family. And I think, okay. yeah, it is. I, I got really interested in APOE actually when I found out someone in my family was a three, four, and then it was before I had got my results. And I, I got really interested in looking at people who are APOE for and understanding what differentiates who actually ends up with Alzheimer's first not. And can you understand how some people are, are more resilient, even though they might be slightly more predisposed. And for that, we don't have answers yet. But again, it, right now, the health behaviors seem to be the, the biggest things. And and there are other things, too, slightly out of our control. So there's some evidence that things like air pollution can actually exacerbate risk, especially in people with genetic pre- predisposition like APOE. So yeah, not everything's fully in our personal control. But yeah, there are environmental and behavioral things that seem to matter a lot. I'm so, so. appreciating that you just say there's so much we don't know. I, yeah. like, I think that's so important to acknowledge that we're still learning yeah. so much. And that was very clear in the book too. And I'm just curious if anything else has changed. I know when you were writing it, you had started a lot of those studies on APOE 3, 4. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned something really interesting about if you're a 3, 4, maybe you have less inflammation or less like inflammatory predispositions. Oh, Anything yeah. else that you've gleaned on that since the book? Yeah. So we we had this really strange result. This is a paper where we weren't looking at APOE specifically. We were just looking at what genes were associated with. We had two different measures of biological age. And one tended to be a little more 
kind of cardiometabolic and lipid associated measure of biological age, and the other was more inflammatory. And what we found was that APOE4 would accelerate the more cardiometabolic lipid ones. So they had an older seeming profile in terms of that, but they looked younger in terms of the kind of the immune and inflammatory one. And at first, my colleague who had run the study, I was sure she miscoded it. And I said, no, you have to go back because there's no way E4 would reduce your risk of, of anything. And we looked multiple times. Then we had other study, other samples, and we found the same thing uh, was replicated in those. Yeah, I'm still not entirely clear. I emailed some of my colleagues who are really, uh, Caleb Finch, who works at USC Studies APOE, the expert on this and on inflammation. I emailed him and I don't have a good answer, but it's definitely something I want to follow up on and figure out if, how to understand that. Yeah. yeah. So fascinating. I love that you don't have an answer. I I, I oh, just really appreciate so that. much to learn. <laughs> when yeah. I had heard at some point that the four potentially could be pro- protective against parasites, yeah, versus the two is very prone to parasites. But again, yeah. one more thing to look at. And exactly, wild. there's a reason that we've evolved to have the four. I think in our you know history, so humans are kind of right. unique in that we have this other allele, which actually aren't in some of our closer ancestral species. So yeah, the question is like, what, where did this come from? How come it's still in the population if it only has deleterious effects? Um, so it must have some beneficial effect. And some people are saying that it has something to do yeah, with, you know, parasite or immune function. And it's not exactly clear, but yeah, there's yeah, some other tuned. people say it has to do with when we started eating meat that maybe this came up, but yeah, it's, I'm not sure. Fascinating. Yeah, crazy. Um, yeah. And that reminds me, something else you talked about in the book, the, the agiotypes, if that's how you say it, yeah. with immunity, metabolism, liver, and kidney. Can you talk about those differences? Yeah. So agiotypes is a term um, that my colleague, Mike Snyder, who's at Stanford, came up with. So, uh, And the idea is basically, yes, we all age at a different rate. But as, as we actually talked about before, we also age in different ways. So some people are going to be more predisposed to certain types of aging than others. And actually, my group is really interested on can we quantify these different ways that we age? Um, and we've actually expanded it past the ones that I have in the book. So using just one, I don't want to sound like uh, Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos, but <laughs> basically it's like using one sample, can we can we actually quantify how you're aging across different systems? And we think we actually can do a pretty good job. So we can kind of capture a brain or cognitive aging, we can capture kind of heart, uh, metabolic, liver, kidney. We have a musculoskeletal one now, uh, lung. I might be forgetting others, but yeah, we're trying to as many of these systems as possible. And again, the interesting thing is not just how fast you age in them, but whether we can find different profiles. So are there people who tend to age faster in certain kind of subsystems and others who age faster in different ones, and what causes that? And also, what do those people look like over time? Are certain groups more susceptible to certain types of diseases? And in the future, the idea will be maybe based on your subtype or this agiotype that you might want to have different interventions or lifestyles according to your risk factors. And 
that's still something that needs a lot more data for us to be able to predict what's going to be the best for a certain type of person. But I think that's where hopefully it'll go in the future. Mm. And I'm assuming that's going to help give us better calculations or uh, equations to predict this because there's biomarkers yeah. from all of those categories in at least the, yeah. the one that we did on longevity advantage. Like there's yeah. immunity, metabolism, mm-hmm. liver, all those things you just mentioned. So yeah, let's get more clarity on that. Yeah. So what we did is actually we use, we have like a really extended panel that actually even looks more in depth as some of these categories as well. And we take functional measures from some of them. And then we can predict kind of that whole score from your methylation profile. And then that'll give you, and it's also good because, you know, as we talked about in the beginning with, you know, it's not clear when you estimate your biological age, like, is that number really a good one? But now if you have 10 numbers, you can kind of put them in reference to each other because they should all be on a similar scale. So you'll still know I'm at least a slightly older on this category and younger on this one. And I think that'll give you slightly more accurate predictor or measures. Yeah. yeah. I guess and Renee, you- I'm curious if the 13 is motivating to you or if you're like, screw it, I'm going <laughs> to do whatever I want. I'm going to go out and party this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I it's kind of good confirmation, I think, to see all of these for all of my ages to be below my chronological mm-hmm. age, just because I feel like I do a lot, but there's things I could do better. I think my diet could be better. My exercise could be better, but it's good confirmation that I'm at least doing something right. Yeah. The biohacking I think, is working. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I feel like we'll always think, oh, I could be better. Right. Like, oh, I, oh, yeah. you know, I, yeah. three days ago, I ate that one thing that I probably, but I think the other thing we have to keep in mind is like how much return are you going to get on each little investment? And yes, you could be totally perfect, but if being 95% perfect or 90% perfect gets you almost the same benefit and it's a lot easier to maintain, then I think that gives people, I think that's another important piece of information that people can get. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I have been through those stages where my diet was a hundred percent perfect but I wasn't going out to eat with friends. I was mm-hmm. being, if I was, I was being that annoying person to the waiter asking about yeah. everything. And like <laughs> all of those things for me were stressful. So like that stress wasn't worth it for me. So I'm like, if my diet's perfect 90% of the time, I can live my life. I'm happy. I'm not stressed, mm-hmm. but that's a personal thing. I think everyone has to figure out what percentage yeah. really works well for them. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, in the social community, joy factors that now we're seeing show up in biomarkers, I think. Is, is there yep. anything in the genetics that you're really looking at that's fascinating on that end? Yeah, that I like think by sh- social connection. Yeah, so people are are interested in this. Um, and I think as more and more data comes about, I, but again, I think this is another area where we have to be careful with this reverse causality that people who are healthy are going to be more likely to go out and be social and engaged than people who are, you know, sick or things like that. But, but there definitely does seem to be, so people can look at these large population studies and social connection does have a big impact. And even the health of people in your kind of social network seems to have an impact on your health as well, which is another really interesting thing, how some of these things can kind of move through, through the social networks and yeah, actually impact the individuals within them. Yeah. yeah. And so and cool. that's one of the aspects of the blue zones, correct? Do they think it's some of the social? Yeah. So the blue zones, one thing they think is kind of this, it's a real, they tend to be these very tight knit communities with, you know, lots of kind of 
cultural traditions and, you know, this really social aspect, but then they also have very, what we might characterize as very good health behaviors. So they are physically active. They're not going to the gym, but a lot of them are people who do not hard manual labor, but they're out walking a lot or moving their bodies a lot. And they eat what we categorize as like whole foods. Um, They're not eating highly processed foods at all. Uh, They have like no access to that. So it's all whole foods, lots of plants, lots of, they they eat some meat, not tons of of meat, but yeah. It's so cool to see that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just curious on a personal level with all the research you're doing, has there been a shift to like more moderation or or was there a, a more global shift in your own health choices or activities? Yeah. So I, I feel like I was also in the past a little more strict too on my health behaviors. So I was for a while, like purely vegan and, you know, wouldn't eat anything that wasn't totally plant-based and tracking you know, things a lot more intensely. I I still eat, I would say 95% that way. And I still really care about a lot of my health behaviors and make, trying to make sure I get exercise and I'm at a standing desk all day instead of trying to sit all day. I don't know how much that helps. I'm still standing still, but yeah, I think I got a fidget. I know I I do because I feel like otherwise my feet start hurting. Yeah. But yeah, I feel like I've gotten a little bit more like I need to optimize the things that I can, but it's more about how how do I maintain a lifestyle that I that I can stick to that works with my crazy work hours and that I still feel like I'm getting a benefit out of. Yeah. yeah those awesome. are all great things. Um, another personal question I'm gonna throw at you. Uh, what yeah. what are you most excited to see in the next maybe five years in this space? Yeah. So actually the thing that I've become really interested in, which is actually a thing my lab is moving into studying more, it's not health behavior related at all. It's actually more what some people might call like almost like sci-fi aging science is uh, something called reprogramming. So basically what that is, is you can take a cell. So even a cell from an older individual, like 80 or 90 years old, and you express Right now, it's been these four genes that people have identified. And someone named Shania Yamanak actually won the Nobel for finding these. And you can convert an old cell back into an embryonic stem cell. So we can measure the epigenetic age at, you know, before you apply them. And it says that's a cell from an 80-year-old or a 90-year-old. And then after it says it's a cell from someone age zero. So it totally reverses everything. Granted, you don't want to turn cells in someone's body back into stem cells. You want still skin cells and liver cells and the cells that actually are supposed to be there. But it does seem that the aging profiles are erased first or reversed first. So the idea is, can you find ways to convert an old skin cell into a young skin cell or an old liver cell into a young liver cell? And it's not ready for like anything in individuals yet, but I think it's a really exciting science because we always just thought, aging went one direction, right? That Mm. cells age and there was never an idea that you could reverse it in a cell. That's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. How many years do you think it's going to be until that's available on a personal level? Yeah. I mean, some people think that for people with like terminal diseases, that this could be in the next five years to a decade. It's hard to tell. There are a lot of hurdles that kind of need to be overcome to make sure that it's safe 
Um, there's probably better factors than these four factors that were initially discovered. Because one of the risks is if you convert the cells too far back, then they don't know what type of cell they are. And actually, you have risk of them turning into tumors because they kind of, you know, divide and turns into all all different types. And you get these really nasty, what are called teratomas, which are tumors made up of a bunch of different cell types. Um, so yeah, there are these definite hurdles that we need to overcome, but there, um, my colleagues are already doing this in mice and there seems to be a benefit. So there, I, I do think there's potential in the future to at least, even if it's not this technology, the fact that this was possible, I think opens up huge doors for what could actually be done. So exciting. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So I just want to kind of recap before we finish up today. Uh, to go back to the testing and things that we can control and the things that we do know now, where would you point someone to get the most motivating test? And then like what lab biomarkers should we keep an eye on the most closely over time? Yeah. So again, I, I feel like it's important to not just do one test. Yes. Some tests are expensive. So, you know, I won't tell people to go out and do like five epigenetic tests because right now they're really expensive. Even one is kind of expensive for a lot of people, but I do think, you know, the clinical biomarkers, things that you can get from them are good. I would make sure not every company publishes their publishes a validation that what they're measuring is useful. And I think that's really important because again, there's no way for the average consumer to say that the number they're getting is even a valid number. I mean, you could have a company that just makes up a number and sends it to someone. No one would have any way of knowing. I'm not saying people are doing that, but Hypothetically, so yeah, yeah. I think making sure there's there's some validation that's that's peer reviewed, and then I would just do a few tests and track them over time and try to get a more holistic thing from that. And then in terms of the actual markers, I think it's important to look at a lot of them, so across different systems. So definitely things that capture inflammation um, are important. So CRP. Sometimes you can get things like TNF alpha or IL six, but most labs won't do that. Definitely metabolic, so any HbA1c, fasting glucose, any of these tests. Liver and kidney function um, is important. So creatinine, alkaline phosphatase, albumin. Albumin comes up in almost every biological age test. I don't, again, I don't know why, but it seems to be one of those critical measures. Um, and then I think, you know, the immune, all the CBC and immune measures are important. And ironically, things like cholesterol actually don't seem to play as big a role as we once thought in the, they don't tend to actually be selected for in the biological age measures. We aren't arbitrarily selecting the computer selects what's most predictive and cholesterol doesn't, doesn't usually make the cut, which I always think is interesting or blood pressure. Yeah. Mm. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So much focus on that. (laughs) Cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. That's so helpful to know. Wow. Morgan, this has been so incredible. I've learned so much from you today and so grateful for our time together. Before we let you run, we want to ask one final question. If you could give our audience one piece of advice of something they can start doing today to optimize their health, what would that be? Yeah, I I mean, for me, it might be the obvious. I would say start tracking your health. And probably a lot of your audience is already doing that. But I think there's no way to know how, how well the things you're doing are actually impacting your health unless you're tracking it until it's too late, right? So you want to start tracking it early. And I would say it's never too early to start doing that. Yeah. We always say test, don't guess. 
So go out yep. there, get your baseline so you know where you're starting. Great advice. Yep, exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so grateful for you. Thanks so much. Yeah, this is great. Awesome. And thanks everyone for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional.